Welcome back to the Rules Plus podcast. In the last episode, I launched the so-called Siblings Project as a part of the larger ongoing Neighbors Project to map the neighborhoods where aligned rules live. I discussed the first of 15 pairs of rules concepts that I've dubbed to be siblings separated at birth, but still highly engaged with each other. The goal of these projects is to build on the idea that we should resist treating rules as silos, but rather consider the ripple effects that rules have on each other. In this episode, I'm going to postpone considering the shared and distinct aspects of the next pair of rule siblings I've identified, illegal forward pass versus intentional grounding, in order to share two interesting mechanics siblings whose relationships were clarified at the Tasso Football Annual Meeting last week at the Renaissance Dallas Hotel. One, NCAA officiating standards versus Tasso officiating philosophies, and two, flagrant targeting versus non-flagrant targeting. The featured speaker at this year's annual meeting of Tasso football referees was Mountain West Conference Coordinator of Officials Mike DeFee. A native of Beaumont, DeFee worked four Big 12 championship games, eight bowl games overall, one college football playoff semifinal game, and the 2017 national championship game between Alabama and Clemson. The featured presentations at the afternoon general meeting clarify differences between NCAA and TASSO officiating philosophies and between NCAA and UIL enforcement philosophies of targeting fouls. Here are the highlights of those clarifications. First clarification, NCAA versus TASSO Stated Philosophies Following DeFee's keynote presentation to highlight the general session of the annual meeting, TASSO Training Director Mike Wise gave a thorough briefing on TASSO-specific officiating philosophies for Texas high school football. As I covered in Episode 3 of this podcast, new this year in the NCAA Rules Book is a six-page section of officiating standards that introduces the approved rulings part of the rules book. The new material comprises 15 sections of what previously were referred to as philosophies and that were presented separately in the mechanics manual for college crews. Material about parallel philosophies for Tasso high school officials comprises 27 sections of what Tasso still calls philosophies in the mechanics manual for high school crews. Wise's comments about differences between NCAA standards and TASSO philosophies have significant relevance for us because of the principal reason for those differences, namely the looming omnipresent eye in the sky of replay for Division I and often Division II college games. The divergence in standards slash philosophies essentially acknowledges what even casual fans have suspected since the advent of using video replay to review officials' calls. The presence of replay 
affects calls on the field directly, especially in change of possession situations when a ruling determines immediately whether the ball should become dead. One obvious example is determining whether a runner fumbled the ball or was already down when the ball became loose. If an official rules a fumble, the ball remains in play. If not, the ball becomes dead, and the covering official should acknowledge that by blowing his or her whistle. If the call of fumble is incorrect, that's easy to fix with replay, but if the call of a runner down is incorrect, that's hard to fix, or perhaps not even fixable at all, even with replay. So when in doubt, the so-called safe call is fumble, and on Saturday, the crew can rely on replay to make things right. On Friday night, we don't have replay, so we have to make the call we see. A parallel example is determining whether a quarterback fumbled or had started a forward pass when hit. Another decision with live ball versus dead ball impact. The safe call here is also fumble, with replay lurking to make things right. But here's where there's one of those important differences that Wise talked about between an NCAA standard and a TASO philosophy. College and high school protocols are the same for runners, but not for passers. The NCAA officiating standard in Section 3 concerning fumbles treats runners and passers the same way. Standard 3-1 reads, quote, when in question, the runner fumbled the ball and was not down. Standard 3-2 reads, quote, when in question regarding whether the quarterback passed or fumbled, it will be ruled a fumble. The Tasso officiating philosophy in Section 27 concerning fumbles treats runners and passers differently. The first of three parallel bullet points reads, quote, when in question, the runner fumbled the ball and was not down. The second bullet point reads, quote, when in question, the ball is passed and not fumbled during an attempted forward pass. The bottom line is that the two protocols are the same for when a runner loses the ball, but are different, at least on the surface, when a passer does. NCAA and Tasso cut a runner no slack with a default call of fumble, though having replay as backup means that NCAA protocol does in fact protect a runner from officiating error. And while it may seem that Tasso more than the NCAA protects passers from their mistakes, the fail-safe device of NCAA instant replay bails out passers too, while also protecting officials from a possibly erroneous game-changing ruling that kills a play. Tasso's approach, in the absence of replay, also protects both passers and officials by mandating the so-called safer call in all circumstances.
Is there a good reason for the Tasso philosophy that favors pastors over runners in providing the benefit of the doubt? If college officials have wronged a runner with a call of a fumble, that gets fixed. If we high school officials wrong a runner with a call of a fumble, there is no recourse. I think you can make a case for Tasso to adjust its philosophies to direct us to rule that, when in question, the runner is down. However, why suggested an intriguing reason for the Tasso philosophy concerning runners? It seems that extensive video review of in-question plays where a runner loses the ball has led to a finding that in the vast majority of cases, the runner did, in fact, fumble the ball. Research favors a default call of fumble when replay isn't available. Be sure and point that out to the offensive coordinator when he asks you about your call. The writer and editor in me begs that I share a more general observation about the language used for labeling bang-bang possession plays. Historically, the NCAA rules and conference supervisors have referred to these situations as, quote, when in doubt, end quote, moments. The phrasing has long been, when in doubt, do whatever. Recently, as reflected in the new NCAA officiating standards section and the Tasso officiating philosophies, the phrasing is now, when in question, do whatever. What a subtle and brilliant revision. Doubt, of course, resides in a person. Question resides in an objective set of circumstances. Doubts are internal. Questions are external. Officials no longer have doubts to reconcile. Plays simply present questions to be processed. What a brave new world. It may strike you as odd that there should be explicit acknowledgement in a rules book that there are situations that aren't black and white situations when officials can't definitively determine what happened. For example, nowhere in the NFHS baseball rules book is there a stated protocol for a default ruling, such as, when in question, a runner is out, or, when in question, a batter has swung, or, the old favorite, a tie goes to the runner. But there it is in print for football officials. Here's your get-out-of-jail option. The principal escape hatch for football officials is provided by the provisions in 4-1-2 for handling an inadvertent whistle, a situation that presents a crew's absolute worst nightmare. These provisions are like auto or liability insurance. You hope to never use them, but you're glad to have them if you must use them. And, like death and taxes, the one guarantee in anyone's football officiating career is that you are going to have an inadvertent whistle. Just never have a second one.
So you must absolutely know the provisions in 4-1-2 while hoping that it is the rule you refer to the least throughout your season and career. In a nutshell, this is what to do if an unintended whistle instantly kills the ball during a play. If someone possesses the ball, his team may choose to accept the outcome of the play or have a do-over. If the ball is loose by accident from a fumble, backward pass, or illegal pass, the team in possession may choose to accept the outcome of the play or have a do-over. If the ball is loose by design from a forward pass, a free kick, or a scrimmage kick, there's a do-over, no option involved. And during a try or overtime period, if Team B possesses the ball, the play is over. Potentially adding insult to injury, fouls or violations during the down will still be administered. The moral of the story is clear. Don't blow until you know. Okay, now on to the second clarification at the general meeting. The UIL's flagrant versus non-flagrant targeting. The discussion of targeting focused on clarifying the rationale for the UIL's recent introduction of an option to classify a targeting foul as flagrant or non-flagrant. The principal takeaway message was that high school officials must avoid choosing the non-flagrant option as a way to lessen their exposure to criticism or dissent from coaches and fans or to mitigate an offender's responsibility because we judge he didn't mean to do it or we don't want him to suffer the serious consequences that may involve his next game. The differentiating criterion should be straightforward. The foul is flagrant if everyone on the crew agrees that the foul includes all the elements required to be targeting. The foul is non-flagrant if some on the crew disagree or unsure whether all the elements are present. Because it's critically important that every member of a crew thoroughly understands the targeting rule let me summarize the principal points the presentation covered about targeting. It's easy to overlook that actually there are two types of targeting. The first type is making forcible contact using the crown of the helmet. That's covered in 9-1-3. This kind of targeting applies to any situation and any point of contact, not just to situations when the victimized player is defenseless or is hit in the head or neck area. In 2022, the crown of the helmet was specifically defined in 9-1-3 as the circular area defined by a 6-inch radius from the top of the helmet. Contact by the face mask or side of the helmet is not contact by the crown of the helmet. The foul also requires that there be at least one indicator of targeting. Old-timers to officiating would liken this type of targeting foul to what we used to call spearing. 
The second type of targeting is making forcible contact to the head or neck area of a defenseless player, covered in 9-1-4. This kind of targeting applies specifically to contacting a defenseless player in the head or neck area with any area of the helmet or with a forearm, hand, fist, elbow, or shoulder. The rule specifically states that in a when-in-question situation, contact is a foul and a player is defenseless. The foul also requires that there be at least one indicator of targeting. You'll recall among the principal indicators of targeting are four, launching, and leaving the ground to attack with an upward and forward thrust to an opponent's head or neck area. Crouching, to attack with an upward and forward thrust to an opponent's head or neck area. Leading, with the purpose to attack with the helmet, shoulder, arm, fist, or hand, an opponent's head or neck area. And lowering the head to attack an opponent with the crown of the helmet. Remember these four ING words, launching, crouching, leading, and lowering. To summarize, targeting is indicated when a player makes forcible contact with anyone anywhere on the body with the crown of his helmet, or when a player makes forcible contact with a defenseless player using any part of his helmet or arms. If your crew's verdict is unanimous, the targeting is flagrant. If you have a hung jury, the targeting is non-flagrant. You may have your own interesting takeaways or questions from the TASO general session at the annual meeting. If you do, I urge you to bring them up when we convene our first live Rules Plus study group on Zoom before our regular AFOA meeting on August 7th. Until then, I hope you're making this podcast a habit, a big part of your preparation for the season fast coming up to us. If you're not an AFOA member, I hope you'll still consider joining us. Or if you live elsewhere, consider joining your local football officials association in your area. Our training for new members has started, so don't delay if you're interested in joining AFOA. Email us at recruiting at AFOA.WS. Visit our website at www.austinfootballofficials.org or call us at 512-298-2987. Till next time, have a great week.